Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Save us. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. To the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy upon us and save us. Amen. Our talk today on the Feast of San Gennaro. San Gennaro, or Saint Genarius, as you probably know, is a great patron saint of the city of Naples. He was ordained a priest at 15 years old, ordained a bishop at 20 years old. In the midst of the Diocletian persecution, one of the most horrific persecutions that the church has ever seen in the late 3rd century, San Gennarius was uh, martyred in 305 as the Diocletian persecution was finishing. He was arrested as he went to visit a friend of his who was also a saint, arrested and thrown into jail. By tradition, they threw him to the wild beast. The wild beast laid on the ground and refused to attack him. He was thrown into a fiery pit, much like the three young men in the fiery furnace. The fire went around him. Finally, he was taken out of that pit and beheaded. His head remains to this day in the city of Naples, and once a year on September 19th, this coming Wednesday, the bishop takes two vials of his blood that were saved by a disciple of his when he was beheaded. She took some of his blood and kept it, and by tradition, on September 19th, once a year, it liquefies. And the bishop holds up the vial for the faithful, turns it upside down so that they can see that the blood drains in the vial and it is liquefied. It was brought near his head when this happens, um, which is kept there in Naples. I'm going to be talking a little bit more about that after our talk. Why is it that God seems to do these, what amounts to almost like magic? Huh? What would a good God want in this kind of nonsense, as maybe some of our non-Catholic brothers and sisters might say? Well, I'm going to explain that very shortly afterwards. But there's also another wonderful tradition, that is that San uh, Gennaro is also there in Naples to protect the city as Mount Vesuvius oftentimes erupts. And on occasion, as it is erupted and the lava is flowing towards the city, the statue is taken out and marched directly at the lava as it is coming at the city. And the tradition is it has gone around and saved the city. Also, when the city is experiencing a drought, the statue is taken down to the seashore. And in Italian, they say they tilt the statue towards the sea and say, San Gennaro, either, uh, either you dunk us, you get us wet, or we're going to dunk you. And they tilt his statue towards the water and then take it back and pray in the cathedral. And time and time again, the rain eventually comes. And so he saves the city. 
Our speaker, Dr. John Cutterback, graduated from Catholic University with a PhD in philosophy in 1997. Uh, he is an avid gardener, a third order Dominican, a professor of philosophy at Christendom College. He lives with his family right down the road in these beautiful mountains right near my own home. And he is also a dear friend of mine. I learned philosophy from him. I took his courses in philosophy at Christendom College. I will never forget those days and forget the friendship that we formed there at Christendom College. Please join me in welcoming back Dr. John Cutterback. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Deacon. I, I love how the Deacon always does a great job of softening up the crowd and also making sure even if I say absolutely nothing of worth, it was still worth your coming because he is able to share those pearls with you there. Speaking of which, the good deacon chose our topic today, and I was wondering, was this because he loves me or because he hates me? Or either he has such high confidence in me that talking about cheese will somehow be interesting, or he just wanted to see, well, let's just see what happens if we have him speak on this, cheese. I'm actually quite excited. I've always been a, a big fan of, of G.K. Chesterton, and I, I think there's a couple things in here that we'll in, enjoy looking at together. Were there copies that were made available, Deacon? So th they, are, they are out there. If you don't, that's okay. I'm going to refer to a couple spots, but if you have not read it, it is not a problem. As um, what Chesterton is up to here, I'll try to make apparent in any case. Here's a very interesting line. At the beginning of the second paragraph, Chesterton says, But cheese has another quality, which is also the very soul of song. Cheese has a quality, is the very soul of song. I love this assertion. It's very intriguing. Clearly, Chesterton thinks there's something extremely important in cheese, although he doesn't say exactly what it is you have to look carefully through the rest of the essay to figure out exactly what's going on in cheese that makes it be the very soul of song. So he tells a little bit of a, of a story here, and he tells how he, when he was traveling, he had to go to several different inns in several successive days, and he was able to taste a different cheese at each inn. And what an amazing experience he had in tasting these fabulous local cheeses. And then he gives a contrast, ultimately, with the cheese that he found when he came to the industrial cities of the north of England. At that time, there would have been a rather dramatic difference where there would have been the very up-to-date food in this industrial area that would have had a notable difference from these other rural areas. And so he had the occasion to compare them. What was the difference? What did he notice about the cheese that he loved at those local inns that was so amazing? Well, clearly, it was local. It had a taste, it had a character of the place, somehow in the cheese. And he found that very important. Also, it was clearly the object of a loving art. That there had been a lot that had gone into making this cheese. It was, it was obvious that there had been care, that people had seen this as the fruit of their particular labors that they were directing towards having others being able to enjoy. And then finally, it had, therefore, 
a higher quality. It was just noticeable that this cheese was different. What did he notice about the cheese in the industrial towns and what we can really just call industrial cheese? Well, it had none of those things. It had none of the character of the area that it came from. There was nothing particularly local about it. There was nothing that connected it to the place where he was. Secondly, it wasn't the fruit of a loving art, or at least it showed no signs of being so. It seemed to be more just the fruit of, of machinery, mass distribution. There was nothing about it that said, you know, someone has put a lot of love into this. And so, thirdly, obviously, it wasn't very high quality. It wasn't very special cheese. Good cheese, bad cheese. This led him to reflect upon the distinction between good culture and bad culture. I'm going to read you a couple of lines here. This is in the second paragraph, several sentences in. Now it is just here that true poetic civilization differs from that paltry and mechanical civilization that holds us all in bondage. Bad customs are universal and rigid, like modern militarism. Good customs are universal and varied, like native chivalry and self-defense. Something that he notices about good culture is that it is very varied, that it speaks of the place that it's from. There's something profoundly local about good culture. And we're going to come back to that because on the surface of it, we could be saying, well, okay, but, but so what? In fact, let's broaden out and just right now say, okay, so there's good cheese and there's bad cheese. So what? What difference does this make for us? Is this a matter of real concern for us as Catholics? Is this a matter of Catholic culture, should we be concerned if there is cheese that is not the way that it should be? Well, let's think about this a little bit. Let's pretend that G.K. Chesterton comes to our culture, and let's take a look at what he might find here, and then in that context, let's ask ourselves whether it might make a difference for us. So let's say that he comes and he joins us, and I want to I think quickly about three different areas that he might see, that we're going to know what he would think based upon what he already said here. What if he comes and he experiences our food, our music, and our entertainment? And I want you to think with me for just a moment as to what G.K. Chesterton would experience if he came and he joined us in our culture and he tasted our food, he listened to our music and looked at our habits of how we listen to music and he looked at our entertainment. Would he not find, to cut to the chase, would he not find the very things that he found in the industrial cheese in spades? In all of those areas, in general, these things are not locally produced. Food, by and large, the object of mass production, mass distribution. Music. In general, local folk musics really are not happening anymore. We have mass-produced, 
mass distributed music. What about entertainment? Something as profound as how do we spend our free time? What are our habits and customs of entertaining, or I like to use a better word, recreating? Although at times the distinction between them I think is actually very relevant. I think there's a lot less recreation today. A lot of us turn to entertainment. Note that the entertainment implies something much more passive. We come to our free time and we simply want to be shown something. And so in general, what are the habits? We turn to mass-produced entertainment. Think of the things that he noticed about the cheese. Again, it's not local. It doesn't show the character of the place, the food, the music, the entertainment. It doesn't show the local character. Does it show, in general, an attentiveness to an art that was seeking to produce something that is beautiful? And in general, then, do we end up with high quality? Do we have high quality food? Do we have high quality music? Something as profoundly important in civilization as music. And do we have high quality entertainment slash recreation? But still, that said, I ask the question, so what? Would it just be snobbish to take G.K. Chesterton's approach? Is, is he really just kind of being a snob and saying, you know, this stinks. I deserve better cheese. Where's the good stuff? You know, I don't want some slice of colored something. I want, so I didn't mean to point at your <laughs> food there, Deacon. Um, I want something that's going to taste better. I throw out at you St. John 10.10. I came that they might have life and have it to the full. It has always been our Catholic understanding that our Lord wants us to have a certain kind of life, a certain kind of fullness in life. And in His view, in the Catholic understanding that has brought this out over centuries. Material things make a difference. Some material things are fitting for us. They fit with our human dignity and our Christian vocation. And other material things don't. And that it actually does make a difference for us, both bodily and spiritually. And that is going to be my main assertion. Although I don't want that to be the only assertion. Because again, he did come that we might have life and have it abundantly or have it more fully. And that includes the bodily. But let's think then for a moment about food. What should, taking that as kind of the archetype, because that's what Chesterton has done. He wants us to focus on the cheese. I hope we can see something larger through cheese. Let's think about food. What should food do? First of all, food should truly nourish the body. This noble, noble organism. So I should have looked at someone else's body. This, this noble organism that God has given us, it deserves to be nourished with loving attentiveness 
Food can and should do that. What else can and should food do? It should foster community. Food is a key, if not the key way, that human beings come together in a regular way. You know, do you know what the main Greek word for household was? Those who sit around the same table. So food is something that should bring us together. It should nourish our body. It should bring us together as human beings. And then finally, I suggest food should nourish us spiritually. Food should be an aid to our spiritual life. Food done well literally nourishes us spiritually. And I think Chesterton points to this when towards the end he's talking about how he, he I, I, can you picture this, this comic situation, this poor waiter. I've, I've seen people do this someone like Chesterton do this to a poor innocent waiter or waitress at a restaurant and he, the guy's just serving up the biscuits and industrial cheese and, and Chesterton starts to hold forth and he, here's Chesterton's description of it I addressed the waiter in warm and moving terms that's a great line well, you can imagine what that looked like I asked him who he was that he should put asunder those whom humanity had joined. I asked him if he did not feel as an artist that a solid but yielding substance like cheese went naturally with a solid yielding substance like bread. To eat off biscuits, which would have been crackers in England, to eat off biscuits is like eating it off of slates. I asked him if when he said his prayers he was so supercilious as to pray for his daily biscuits. Now, here's the thing. Honestly, in that, I think, is a key and beautiful truth. What are we praying when we say, give us this day our daily bread? Honestly, if our experience of bread is wonder bread, I honestly present for your consideration, it makes a difference for how we pray. Our Lord chose the words of this prayer very carefully, as He chose all His words very carefully. And of course, this was to be the prayer, and it was supposed to make clear to us just what we should ask of God, and as the great commentators say, and also in what order we should ask it. The natural analogates are always very, very important. What are we to do if the basic simple things in our culture are being debased to the point that to ask for our daily bread barely has any meaning for us? But if bread is something over which there has been great care, very careful production, here is something that is truly nourishing, then when we pray to God, give us this day our daily bread, it means something more. So here, I, what am I saying there? This is under the rubric of understanding what kind of food we have and consume makes a difference, actually, for our spiritual life. Right there, it makes a difference for our prayer life, how we experience food.
Let me give you another way that I believe that food should influence our spiritual life. And I preface it by saying this. Shouldn't our life fundamentally be about gratitude? Isn't, in a sense, the most fundamental disposition a creature should have towards his loving creator is one of thank you, thank you, and thank you again for this, for that, for everything. Doesn't it seem that food is the primary instance of something wherein regularly, by God's design, we were to have our thoughts and affections turned towards gratitude, that we, would, we consistently need to eat, but then in consistently being able to enjoy the fruits of the earth every time we turn to food, upon taking it in hand or seeing it on the plate, we, we have this sense of thank you. Think how that can form our whole approach to life. That we are fundamentally always grateful. I think what kind of food we have makes a difference. Call me crazy. On, on this one, I'm just going to, and we can discuss it. And if you think I've gone too far here, I'd, I'd like to know. I'm going to come down on Chesterton's side on this and just say, I think that food that has been the object of loving attention, and we're not saying to the point of being overly concerned that has to be perfect. I think we all know there's a way that love should be the object of a care without going overboard that will make it have the quality that evokes from us gratitude. They say that you can taste the love of the person who made food lovingly in the food. Now the story is told of the newlywed man who sitting down to the first meal with his wife and having heard that you can taste the love of your spouse in the food found himself thinking, oh my goodness, if that's what your love tastes like I should have married that woman at the McDonald's counter. So we all know that love doesn't carry the whole, the whole taste thing. But nonetheless, isn't it true? Why does every man think, almost every man, think that his wife is the best cook in the world? In a sense, she is for him because she loves him. And somehow in God's great providence, that is tasteable in that food. And the rest of the family kind of looks up and seeing that, their thoughts are raised to, again, gratitude. Thank you so much. Think of all the levels of gratitude that food can and should bring out in us. Gratitude for the person who made it. Go back to the local thing, by the way, for a moment. When you know the people who produced it, have you experienced that before? Then as you eat it, you, you think, Boy, Joe, way to go. Thanks for raising that animal that way. Thank you for growing that vegetable that way. You have this whole line of gratitude. 
the people that you're sitting around with, the people who made it, the people who grew it, because of course you know them. That's one reason I present to you. Local is important because again, it's a connection between people. It is a connection wherein you should be grateful. And then all of those connections culminate in God has designed this great program where in my having this bacon right here for brunch today, I can taste my wife's love, I can taste the love of the person who raised this pig and raised it well, which is a beautiful thing and something we can and should be grateful for. Food, gratitude, what word am I going to say next to you? Food, gratitude, Eucharist. Eucharist, as you know, means thanksgiving. God connected food and gratitude. And indeed, on that very score, even just that God takes the form of bread, isn't that in itself a good reason to make decent bread? He wants to feed us in some, under the appearance of bread. Let's make real bread and eat real bread together. And I think that actually will make a difference in how we experience the Eucharist. So I want to close by just saying, what are some practical things that we can do? Well, food. We can seek to find, produce, consume the type of food that Chester is talking about, bearing in mind these points. We can think in terms of, can we try to do the whole food thing in such a way as to truly nourish our bodies? That always is important. It, it, it's so easy to lose that in our society, that such a primacy is put in the whole propaganda of how food is advertised as though all that matters is taste. There's something unchristian and unfitting. Taste is important, but of course the nourishing. And isn't it ironic? The industry that puts taste first and isn't so much interested in the nourishing actually end up having food that tastes bad, doesn't it? That phony food, that phony cheese, it doesn't even taste good. Real food tastes good and is nourishing. And we can be attentive to who has made it, under what conditions. How is it being distributed? How is it being prepared? How are we consuming it? Are we making a point of sitting down and taking the time to consume this food in a way that is fitting with that whole program of which we've just been speaking? And then may we take that as a kind of springboard to consider other things. There's so many other things we don't need to, to go into, but music and other forms of cultural expression, how we recreate. We don't have to give an overarching critique of our society right now, but we can just be practical and realize an industrial, commercially oriented society tends to serve up to us many things that are not worthy of us, our human dignity, and our Christian calling. And with our understanding, we can change that and do these material things in accord with truly Christian culture. I thank you very much for your attention.
Thanks, Dr. Kudebeck. Uh, great talk. I just have a quick question for you, um, especially now that we don't live in industrial uh, England and it's not so much a problem of supply. Is the problem that we don't have good cheese or that we don't want it? In other words, do we really need to fix our cheese or the cheese of our hearts? Wow, I like that. Fix the cheese of our hearts. I'd like to say I think it is absolutely both. Your, your question, do we need to change our desires, in other words, I'd say is the question. Here's a quotation from St. Bernard of Clairvaux about the wise man. The wise man is the one who savors all things as they really are. The wise man is the one who savors all things as they really are. Savor, of course, means tastes. He tastes things as they really are. This is actually a very Aristotelian point. The great philosopher Aristotle would have said, you know a man by his desires. The good man desires what is truly good. And the bad man desires that which is not truly good. So we do need to be constantly reforming our own desires. And I'd like to think in terms of a kind of a holistic project. We need to put truly spiritual goods first. But then in putting truly spiritual goods first, we will also then get the material things right. And I think Chesterton is a man who actually did put spiritual things first, and he loved good cheese in that context. So I'd like to say, yes, we need to change our hearts, and then we need to act that way, and more people will be empowered to be able, just economically, the more of us that are interested in these things, the more that these people will be supported, encouraged, and families be able to have these type of professions where they have real arts and produce things that people can really appreciate, but we have to be appreciating them. So we need to change our hearts. Thank you for that question. Thank you, Dr. Cutterback. Thank you. Could you just go over one more time, because I think I missed it. What is the very soul of music that cheese has that same quality? Um, good question. You're going to make me be, I'm, well, that doesn't sound good for me to say. I'm going to try to be more precise than, than he was. I think that that in cheese, which made the heart sing, what ultimately makes the heart sing? Well, as St. Augustine says, only a lover sings. There's something in cheese well done that is the love of persons for persons. I think at the root of all culture is a love of persons for persons. Good music is the fruit of well-ordered love that wanted to bring beauty to people's lives. And again, I, you think of the Italian mama, you think of the, 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 those, those housewives who put so much love into what they do, the food makes you want to break into song. Well-ordered love, but love that puts first things first. And industrial food, where's the love? Or where's the love other than the love of your money that's buying it? Doctor, 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 just. So, sorry. Right. <laughs> yes, Lord. Um, sorry, I just. First, wonder, wonderful talk is over. Oh, thank you. I, I read into the story sort of a, a metaphor for subsidiarity, and I wonder if I'm reading too much. Uh, no. I, I, I think Chesterton always, always had in mind the importance of subsidiarity. For those who aren't familiar with that notion, it's, it's rather complex, but simply said, 
if something can be attended to by a more local authority or institution, then that is better than going to something that has a more general authority, a more universal one above. And so, absolutely, something as basic, as fundamental, as simple, as daily as food and other key aspects of culture, there needs to be that local and varied aspect to it. So absolutely, that's worthy of a lot more comment. I appreciate that question. Thank you very much, Thank doctor. you very much. I need your mic. Thank you very much, Dr. Cutterback, especially that wonderful quotation from our Lord that I came to give you life and give it to you abundantly or in its fullness. And I want to conclude with that particular verse because I think it touches not only upon the topic that we're looking at with cheese, but also upon the heart and the center of our faith and who we are as human beings, who God is as our creator, and what our life is all about. Obviously, today's talk is not just about cheese, nor is the Feast of San Gennaro simply about some crazy miracle the Neapolitans think is going on. I was reading up just to remind myself of the details of this great bishop and martyr of the church, and I think every third word was, they say that, or uh, I don't know all the other doubtful words that were being used, okay, that this obviously for us, we're so advanced, this could not possibly be real that this is taking place. And then a further attack of why? Why would God want to play games with stupid little miracles in Naples? And the answer is something that not, has nothing to do with the outskirts of the faith or what the fringe is thinking, but it has everything to do with the center of the faith and what God is thinking. I want to share with you... Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. This is just after the ascension of our Lord and the gift of the Holy Spirit, where our Lord gives to his friends his own life, so that now they can live not their life, but his life, or I should say rather his life becomes their life, to the point where St. Paul can say, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. I came to give you life and to give it in abundance. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man was lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms of those who entered the temple. If any of you have been to Jerusalem, the beautiful gate is just over the Kidron Valley. This would have been in view of our Lord when he was at the Mount of Olives. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked for alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him with John and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention upon them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but I give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And he took up his right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. From Acts chapter 5. Now many signs and wonders were done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in great honor. 
And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and pallets, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall upon them. These people were being healed in ways that only God heals. Jesus healed the paralytic. He bestowed sight upon the blind. And now those who were following him, those that had received his life, were doing what only God can do. Acts chapter 19. And God did extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs and aprons were carried away from his body to the sick. They would come and they would touch pieces of cloth. Sound familiar, Catholics? And they would carry those pieces of cloth that had touched not Jesus Christ, but the apostles, mere men. And they were taken to the sick and diseased and they were healed. So that those that had the Spirit of Christ could now not only heal themselves, but that the things which touched them also gained that life-giving power of God, which makes things be what they're supposed to be, which makes things right, which rectifies them, which fills them up and makes them do what God designed them to do. And I go further to the Old Testament, to 2 Kings. The prophet Elisha, you remember the story of Elisha, was the uh, disciple of Elijah who gained a double portion of his spirit. And Elisha died. He was placed in the tomb. And another man of the town also soon after that died. And while they were doing the funeral, the burial of this man, a marauding band came through the village tearing up the village and they took the body of this man and the closest tomb was the tomb of the prophet Elisha and they took his body and they threw it into Elisha's tomb and as soon as the dead man's body touched the bones of Elisha I'll read you so Elisha died and they buried him now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year and as a man was being buried lo a Moradian band was seen and the man was cast into the grave of Elisha and as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha he revived and he stood on his feet not only does it become possible for holy men to do the things which are proper to God alone to heal, to give life. But now, mere shadows of holy men and pieces of cloth touched to holy men also receive that life-giving power. And in Second Kings, we find out that the dead bones of a dead man have the power to resurrect someone to life. Those are not the words of Deacon Sabatino or the Renaissance Catholic Church. Those are the words of the sacred scriptures. That is the heart of our faith. And why do I say that? Because God came to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. St. John tells us that God is love, period. And love always seeks to communicate itself, to share itself with another. That's something I learned in Dr. Cutterback's class. It's always stuck with me. That is what love is. Love is this outpouring of life, this desire to share life with another. So that the two that are in love share a common life. God made us and God is love and we are made in His image and likeness. 
He shares His life with us, and His life is eternal. His life knows no death. His life makes things be what they are supposed to be. And He loves us. And that means that God's gift to us is that we get to be like Him. We get to have what He and He alone has. Namely, life and life in its fullness. When the church gathers together on September 19th for the Feast of San Gennaro, to see, to behold, the life-giving power of the miracle of the liquefaction of the blood of San Gennaro, we gather together to worship not a man, but to worship God in the man. But this world is created for the purpose of communicating God's divine life to us. That is why in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, he planted the tree of life, that man might eat of it and live forever. To eat of a created thing and to receive God's own life in creation. That's what the tree of life was made for. Water was meant to communicate divine life in baptism. And we're to learn about that divine life in baptism through drinking of water and living in a natural order that we might reflect upon that natural gift and be elevated to the gift of God Himself to be brought to the font of holy baptism. Bread and wine were made by God for the Holy Eucharist. And by eating of it and drinking of it in a common or, say, a natural way, a natural level, we might begin to reflect upon what God wants for us on a supernatural level. Oil was made to anoint you with the gift of the Holy Spirit. I said the Feast of San Gennaro and cheese, it's not about the edge of the faith or people that have nothing better to talk about. These things reveal to us the heart of the faith, which is the fact that God is love. And if He is love, then He desires that each one of us have life and have it abundantly. And not only that we have life and have it abundantly, but this entire created order, that it be divinized in His image and likeness. That when we partake of the created order, our minds are lifted up our souls are lifted up to partake in the one who is uncreated, God himself. As we enjoy ourselves now at the Feast of San Gennaro, I encourage you to go and support this wonderful Catholic winery that invited us here today. At 2 o'clock, they are going to be blessing the grapes. Go and take a bottle of wine and sit back at one of these tables and look out at this wonderful, beautiful paradise and thank God that He has revealed Himself to us and asked us to enter into that relationship of love with Him. And take that reading on cheese also, and if uh, some of you are together, take it out, take you about five minutes to read it and discuss it so that we can begin once again to appreciate the things that God has given us from cheese to G.K. Chesterton. Amen? Amen? Amen. Now, you're all sitting here and not walking away because you want your free wine tasting. I know. There's a number of wonderful cheeses that we bought that you can go and taste. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture.
If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.